Today's teaching text comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. It is week two of Lent. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And I'm trusting today for a really encouraging message from God to to our church and to the church uh, in our time. Before his death, Jesus warned of a troublesome time ahead. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. That time had now come. The Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, was on the throne. These were the days when Christians were fed to the lions in the arena at Rome, the days when the catacombs were full of earnest believers who met together to strengthen and encourage one another in the trials of life. Throughout the empire, Christianity was spreading at an alarming rate for the Roman emperors. In spite of fire, sword, beastly fury, Roman officers and even high government officials were being converted from paganism to serve the true and the living God of heaven. In somewhat obscure city in Asia Minor, in present-day Turkey, far from the seat of imperial power in Rome, there lived an elderly pastor who had long escaped the fury of the power of Rome. He was well into his 80s, and for many years he had pastored his church faithfully. In fact, he was so old that as a young boy, he could have been a contemporary of John or even a student of the Apostle. Persecution did rage in the city and the enemies of the gospel had sought his life, but he himself had somehow always been able to escape martyrdom. But one day he was betrayed and the place of his uh, residence was discovered. The soldiers rushed into his chamber and demanded that he follow them. The venerable old man asked the young soldiers to give him a season of prayer before they left. Stunned and bewildered by the strange request, the young soldiers saw no reason to deny the man his simplest request. The young soldiers allowed him. Many of these young soldiers were so touched by the fervency and tenderness of his prayers that they later repented. The elderly man was brought before the Roman proconsul, um, clearly unintimidated by the frail old man, yet somehow threatened by the king he professed, he was condemned to be burned alive in the marketplace. 
The appointed day arrived and the old man was led to his place in the open agora, the marketplace where public executions were held. A stake awaited him. It was usual practice in Roman times to nail victims to the stake. But the old man had an unusual claim. He who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. He would not require the nails. He would stand immovable. As the elderly hero took his position at the stake, the proconsul, knowing the frailty of the old man's frame, took pity upon his victim and gave him one final opportunity to recant. Swear and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. The old man contemplated his response, perhaps remembering his Savior's own. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or his predecessor in martyrdom, Stephen, who prayed at his death, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. A hushed silence from the assembled throng awaited his reply. Fixing his aged eyes upon the proconsul, the old man gave his answer, now immortalized for all human history to take note. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He remained in the fire without nails and perished. How was it that he could remain? Perhaps it was that three days before he had had a dream that he was in bed and he was engulfed in flames as if God was preparing him for what was to come. Perhaps it was the words of Christ that he read so many times that carried him. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. These words recorded in Revelation 2, the letter to the church in Smyrna, was written to the church which this old man pastored. See, this old man was the bishop of Smyrna. His name was Polycarp, and the account of his martyrdom still told today, 1865 years later. Smyrna is the current city of Izmir in Turkey, and the passage we read earlier was the letter to that church, to the church that Polycarp was to pastor. Christians today still face persecution in the city. This is a letter that speaks to the tears of God's people. And if you find yourself leaning to tears or have found yourself leaning to tears over the last 12 months, this is for you as well. One thing we need to know about these letters is that uh, what Jesus writes to each of these churches, he also writes to all of the churches. This matters to all churches in all times and all places. Now, though we often practice the discipline of gratitude and hope and expectation of victory in Christ, we also need to practice what uh, Dr. Soon Chan Ra speaks of in his very aptly titled book, A Prophetic Lament, an acknowledgement and a lament that the world is groaning, suffering under the effects of sin and rebellion, that this world is not the way it ought to be. 
Church, we have much reason for tears today. In less than a month, it's the one-year anniversary uh, of, the, of the beginning of the pandemic and the quarantine that we still find ourselves in. Some of us haven't seen loved ones or vulnerable fam- family members for that entire time and wonder, maybe we're concerned that we'll ever see them again. Some of us have, loved, uh, have lost loved ones to this invisible foe. We live in a constant state of awareness regarding the harm that could come from the neighbors that we're supposed to be loving and serving day after day. Life has changed pretty significantly and there is much to mourn. This very week, we have crossed uh, crossed the threshold of 500,000 deaths in our nation because of this pandemic. This is a heartbreaking realization of the predicted impact. And so for some, that's just a distant big number. But for some, one of their loved ones is represented in that number. For all of us, though, who call Christ our Lord, it should bring a lament and a longing. A lament that the world is not as it ought to be and a longing for the king to bring his comfort and renewal. Remember this. The gospel is the good news that God himself, the creator, has come to rescue us from sin, sickness, Satan and death and renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to establish his kingdom through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that is what we lament, this pain, this death, and we long for that renewal. Would you take a few seconds of silence with me and pray and ask God, ask God to relent and to restore and comfort this world in pain. Amen. Thank you for joining us in creating that moment. Today, we'll see in this passage how Jesus speaks to a church and gives them a path through suffering. First thing that happens in this text, and it's beautiful, is that Jesus introduces himself. He introduces himself to a church in tears. He says in verse 8, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus begins his message to the church by making himself known. A self-revealing God who loves to talk and show himself to his people. He reveals himself as one who understands. He is about to speak to a church who suffers and he shows them that he himself has suffered and has overcome. God shows us when we go through hard times. He shows us parts of himself in line with who we need him to be in the situations we find ourselves in. 
He meets their need, not just by giving them what they think they need, but by giving them himself, by reminding them of who they serve, which transcends any circumstance they find themselves in. He firstly gives himself. In times of crisis and suffering, the greatest gift that we are given, that we can receive, is to know God more. And in times of struggle, we get to know God in ways we would not in any other way. Church, the question is, how has God revealed himself to you, to us, in this pandemic season? This Lent, how is he showing himself to you, to our church? And what does that mean for the situation that you find yourself in, in this moment? Perhaps we're so distracted that we have not even noticed who God is in the mess. Here he is. He makes himself known. He is not far from us. If we would only notice. And so I encourage you at the beginning of this to think through the idea of asking him to open your eyes, to reveal himself to you about where he is and how he is at work. The context of this letter is a letter to a church in suffering, undergoing much suffering. They are being persecuted. The church in Smyrna uh, was far from Rome, and yet in order for the Roman Empire to, to have its grip on the people, there was a temple built uh, to Roma, the goddess of Rome, to uh, where you would have to uh, declare your allegiance uh, to Rome, uh, to the empire, to Caesar. And so the, the expected reality was that people would bow and give their ultimate allegiance to Rome. This is why the persecution was so hard upon Christian believers. It came from Roman authorities because they would not compromise and say Caesar is Lord. It came from Jewish religious leaders whose religion was not a threat at, uh, a threat at that stage to Rome. And one commentator actually said that in the history of the church, the most severe persecution has always come from religionists. It also came from the culture at large because there was a social stigma of distancing yourself from the rest of society and not being willing to bow to the powers. And so two things are mentioned here as an aspect of the persecution that they're facing and would face, and that is poverty and pain, that they would go through immense poverty and pain. It says um, that, that, that they were enduring much hardship and poverty, and yet they were rich. This economic hardship that, that is being spoken of here is a, a particular word um, that, that means not just difficult times, it means extreme poverty to the point of, uh, of possibly at risk of losing even your life. This is not something small and it is because they wouldn't bow to the authorities but declare Jesus as king that they were not allowed to join the guilds and the economic networks that would cause their goods to be traded and for them to have an income. And so they were, um, they were excluded from the opportunities to, to create wealth and sometimes even survival. This was no small thing. Their life was genuinely in danger. 
Paul describes the kind of cultural uh, result of gospel community distinction that's happening here in 2 Corinthians 6 as this. They are poor yet making many rich. They own nothing yet they possess everything. There is always a fallout when you refuse to deny Jesus as king. It will cost you and I. Sometimes you will get ridiculed. Sometimes you will lose money. Sometimes you'll lose opportunities. Sometimes you'll lose reputation. Sometimes you will lose friends. So we're faced with the question, can we entrust our reputation, our finances, our relationships, our children, our future into the hands of the one who judges justly? In order to do that, we require a different perspective on wealth and gain. See, he recognizes their poverty, but then he says, yet you are rich. And he wants to to shift the focus and give us a different way of seeing the current struggles that we find ourselves in. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And when we set our mind on things of eternal value, transcendent value, the most superficial physical perceptions find a a greater larger context and and they mean at the same time both less and more they mean less because dying now is not the end the suffering now is not our ultimate end it's only meaningless that suffering if there's nothing beyond my physical breath that i am living for but it also means more and it's more significant because these things that we endure in this life, they somehow become the catalyzing agents of God's grace and formation in our lives. And therefore, we should treasure them. Pain and poverty. So the question we're faced is, how do we make our way through these troubling times? Here's a few things from the text that should help. The first is that we should expect it. This is supposed to be an encouraging word. I get it. And yet he is saying it's going to carry on. I'm going to encourage you by letting you know it's going to carry on. Never be surprised for it. He, he, he makes sure that the believers are not surprised or taken caught off guard because they are experiencing tough times. Every true believer will face what the master faced. The problem with a prosperity gospel or a gospel of too much emphasis on kingdom right now versus the longing of the kingdom that is still coming is that we are not prepared for the hardships that come our way. Here's a puzzling thing about this text is most of the letters written here in Revelation that we're going through during, during, during Lent uh, has a, some sort of rebuke in them. This one has an absence of rebuke. There is no rebuke in this. It's, it's a letter that is preparing them. And it's probably because it would seem that the suffering in itself that they are enduring is doing what God's rebuke would do in having to form us into his image. More than that, there's not just the absence of rebuke, there's an absence of condolence. And this is a tricky one. He doesn't write to say, I'm really sorry you're going through it. And we have to reckon with that. He he doesn't write it because firstly, he creates an expectation for it. But secondly, because he sees that there is benefit to what they're going through. 
God is not always sorry for our hard times and it's not because he is sadistic. So why is it? Glad you asked. It is because in the kingdom we have to realize that enduring trials have purpose. They have meaning outside of just what is happening that we can perceive. Here are a few things that it could be. There must be plenty more. I'll just mention a few. The first is they could be these sufferings, these trials, they could be disciplinary. They could be purifying in some way. It could be preventative. It could stop us from something else that we can't perceive just yet. It could be the learning of obedience, as was Christ's suffering when he obeyed. It could be the providing of a better testimony for Christ. It could be a preparation journey for what is ahead that we cannot yet perceive. There are many reasons that God can use the hardships, the results of sin and suffering and pain. This world is not the way it ought to be. And God can step in and use those for something of a preparation journey for his people. And so why should you rejoice in suffering as the, as, as the scriptures uh, encourage us to do? Not because God wants it or because God delights in it or because God plans. How am I, how am I going to make them suffer now? But because God can take the brokenness of this world, the suffering of this world, the sin of this world, and he can turn it and use it for his own glory and for our joy. Because God considers us worthy because we get to share in the sufferings of Christ because God can use it to benefit us in the ways that we just mentioned. This is not a sadistic joy in the suffering. This is a purpose-filled joy, a joy for where it could lead. He is the God that takes all the effects of our failure and uses it for our benefit. He's the God that takes all our mess ups and turns it for our good. More than that, he's the God that takes the injustices of this world, the things that others have done to us and forms us through them into his very likeness. God's grace overcomes the sin and the suffering that we may face. And therefore, we might Find a way to rejoice in the grace that he shows us through those things. The things that you and I have done and the things that have been done to us, the malicious things, the sin, the suffering intended for our harm and destruction is repurposed by God, by grace for our joy and our benefit. Now, let me be very clear. Just because God can turn sin and suffering into gain for us does not mean it is at his will to author that sin and that suffering. That is not how God works. God works redemptively. It is his ability to restore the broken things that we rejoice in, not in the broken things themselves. So that we can say with Paul, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because we have one who has overcome the worst thing that could happen to us. Therefore, we need not fear. The worst things done to me can still bring me closer to God. 
my worst mistakes can be conduits by his grace of leading me closer to him. Dr. Howard Thurman, who lived through the worst of racial discrimination in the civil rights movement in this country, said this about suffering. What would life be like if there were no suffering, no pain? The startling discovery is made that if there were no suffering, there would be no freedom. Men could make no mistakes, consciously or unconsciously. The race could make no mistakes. There would be no error. There would be no possibility of choice at any point or in any sense whatsoever. Freedom, therefore, cannot be separated from suffering. This, then, may be one of the ways in which suffering pays for its rides. He is not and I am not justifying suffering or injustice. He is saying there can be benefit in the trials we face if we can see it. Another thing happens when we see the purpose uh, of God uh, and the joy accessible in trials. We can forgive those at whose hands they come. We want so badly to retaliate. That's my heart when, in, when I see injustice. And yet, God shows us this pathway where we can forgive them. Because we see it's not really about them. Because we see that God will work through these things. That doesn't mean we shouldn't fight against injustice. It just means we can say, as our Savior did, God forgive them for that they, they, they really don't know what they're doing. Because somehow... God still allows it and redeems it. See, we have faith that God can redeem the most malicious intent and the most harmful mistakes that we make. And therefore, our response in trials benefit us, but also has the potential to benefit others who see our response of grace and forgiveness. Like the soldiers at Polycarp's arrest, like the soldiers at, who, who, who crucified Christ, who later on said, surely he was the Christ. Joseph, at the climax of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, after the whole story of being sold into slavery, he forgives his oppressors, those who were supposed to care for him and love him, his brothers. He forgives them and says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the way God operates. Can you find forgiveness for your enemies intending to hurt you? Can you find uh, forgiveness for those who are near you and love you and yet they betray you? When the very church perhaps that you love has hurt you, can you forgive? When the world persecutes you because you are an exception to the social norms, you stand out, you look silly, can you forgive them? You can still love them, still find joy and still come out stronger on the other side. And we can say with Paul, in all of these things, we are more than overcomers because God's grace reaches into all the brokenness and restores things. We've seen why, but a little bit of the how of surviving suffering. Here's a few things from the text. Jesus knows your tears, firstly. He says, I know your tribulation and poverty. And sometimes the hardest part of suffering is it feels like God can't see. 
It feels like he is not there. It feels like he's oblivious to what you're going through. And Jesus makes very clear, I know what you are going through. And some, some of us today need to hear that from his mouth. I know what you're going through in your marriage, in your body, in the sickness that you face, in your economic trials, in fill in the blank. I want you to know this. I see it and I know it. No matter how silent or absent I may seem, I know Your tears are precious to him. He writes this letter to a church in tears. He is not indifferent to your tragedy, to your pain. Secondly, he doesn't just know it, but he knows what it is like. He reveals himself as the one who died and came to life, the one who suffered through the worst of it, and he can identify with the struggles that we face. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He also gives us this. He says there is a purpose in order that we may be tested. He says we go through these things so that there is a purpose to the testing. And therefore we can be encouraged to go through it knowing that it is not in vain that we go through these things. He also gives us the idea that we can remember what is on the other side of suffering, persecution and pain. He says, at the end, be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. So he says, this is how you go through it. Know that I know. Know that I know what it's like. Know that I am with you. Know that you can be faithful even unto death and you will still benefit from it. And he says, know that I will give you on the other side of this, the crown of life because you have held on. The victor's crown. This is not a, a royal crown. It's, it's a victor's crown. It is one who has overcome gets this wreath of honor. Now, one last comment on how we learn from the saints who suffered before us. Dr. Thurman mentioned earlier, along with Dr. Martin uh, Luther King Jr. and many others, they believed in a nonviolent approach to oppose injustice. So the absence of those violent acts, um, they t- in the absence of them, they turned to what they believed in is more powerful. And that is the power of prayer. Dr. Barbara Peacock writes about these heroes in the midst of their suffering. Uh, She writes this, The spiritual power that would resurrect justice was found on bended knee. She goes on to talk about their path through suffering. The spirit behind rugged knees that tamped the soil in the midst of sugarcane fields is the same spirit behind the knees that are calloused by carpeted and wooden floors, linoleum in high-rise office buildings and storefront churches and marble tile in towering cathedrals and designer showrooms. The laborious and poignant prayers of our ancestors carried them amidst perilous times. Prayer was their sanity and their lifeline into internal peace. Likewise, prayer is our lifeline to contentment. Jesus is there to be found. He wants you to come to him in the desperation of whatever circumstances you find yourself in. And he encourages you that you can make it through and that there is a crown of life on the other side. Now, 
the city of Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh, and myrrh is an ordinary perfume used in everyday life. It was also used uh, in, in, in anointing in the tabernacle. It was used in embalming dead, uh, dead bodies. But why, uh, it's beautiful that it means myrrh because it seems like while the Christians of the church in Smyrna were experiencing the bitterness of suffering, their faithful testimony and their perseverance was like myrrh, like sweet perfume to the nostrils of the divine. Church, there is something about worship that happens when we persevere through suffering, holding to our faith and earning the crown of life by the grace of God. God is with us. Seek after him through prayer in this moment. Now, I wanted this message to be an encouraging word to you in the midst of hard times. And of course, hearing this, you must go, man, encouraging. You're going to endure more hard times. That doesn't sound very encouraging. But Paul in Acts 14, he goes with Barnabas to a number of cities and he strengthens the disciples and he encourages them. That's the word that is used. And he says this to them. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I trust that there is an encouragement for our church in this moment, in, in this letter. Now, we have this letter that we're compiling as a church as if God were writing these letters to us in Brooklyn in our day. And I want to end this moment just by reading it. Sit back and listen to the short excerpt as we seek to hear God's voice over us as a church. To the church in Brooklyn. In a city of transience, you have looked for ways and worked hard to be rooted. You have heard and taken seriously the invitation of the first psalm, that those who live a life drenched in God's word become like a tree planted by streams of water, enduring and producing fruit. You have joined my heart in being willing to love this great city that I have given you. I have seen you seek to surround the hurting among you with comfort, even if you haven't seen them all. But I have this against you. You have been too enamored with your own comfort. You equate making a life in a challenging city as the same as loving Christ and seeking the kingdom. Too often you have seen through the lens of your own preferences. You have turned desired comforts into necessities, forgetting some of your neighbors who don't have the choice of upward mobility. Receive the gift today of forgetting yourself in service and love. This laying down of your life is the way to find it. Let's pray. Father, it's hard sometimes to hear words in troubling times. And yet we know that you are faithful, that you see, that you know, that you understand, that you are with us, that you encourage us to persevere. And that perseverance, God, is, is a fruit of your spirit. And so we ask today that your spirit would come and reside in our hearts, that perseverance will spring up like a plant in springtime after the winter snow. That would break through in our hearts, in our church, for the sake of our city and for the sake of your glory. 
that perseverance through the hard times, that holding to the faith with all we have by your grace and your empowering presence, that we at the end would also wear the crown of life, the crown of honor that you bestow on us. We long for that, God, and we pray for that in your name. Amen.